Oh, hey, what's up? It's Rose Kaz popping in, the femme founder of The Backstage Pass. And I just wanted to tell you a little bit about what we're actually building back there on the backstage. So we dig into topics like money, sex, and politics in ways that you may not have done before. I kind of think about when I very first encountered the internet a couple decades or two ago. In fact, if you'll take a little trip with me in your mind and when you very first used the Googlebots, whether that was five days ago, five months ago, five years ago, or a couple decades too, I don't want to date myself, although I would totally swipe right on me. I just want to have that same curiosity as we dig into these topics, but also as we utilize the internet. And for that matter, and how we use social media. That's exactly what I'm trying to do in my professional life as well as my personal life, to be honest, is do a system upgrade. I know that we can use the internet better. And for that matter, we can utilize and interact socially on the internet. It's called social media in better ways. So that's what we're doing. We're going old school internet. You know, think of those old AOL dial-up days. Think of those ways when you were like, hold on, I'm going to go check the encyclopedia. Wait, what? I can chat room about this? Yes, that's what we're doing. We're going old school interneting here, y'all. How? Stay tuned for the next pod. Oh, and you could also come backstage. Check us out on the Backstage Pass, y'all. LBIBackstagePass.com. L like lady, B like boss, I like international. Backstagepass.com. All right. See you there. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Money, Sex, and Politics. Today, we are digging into money, and my featured guest here, Nicole Kakal. I'm so excited for you all to meet this lady boss, this badass human. Uh, Nicole is a founder and the CEO of Forbes Ignite. She is also the professor, a professor at Parsons School of Design and the Pratt Institute. Nicole's mission is to help with financial inclusion. And she's just a badass lady boss, y'all. I'm so excited to invite Nicole to this conversation. We're going to dig into primarily like how Nicole works around money and particularly as a thought leader on that. But before we get into all that, Nicole, give us a little bit of your background. Like what brought you to this work? What have you been up to leading up to this moment besides catching flights and, you know, jumping up and down the East Coast (laughs) to money mission as awesome as it is for you? Yeah, well, first of all, thank you for the glowing introduction. My background is in financial management. Um, I worked in the investment management industry for about uh, close to a decade. And so I also studied finance in undergrad. And so I thought that my whole career trajectory was going to be in investment management. I went back to school. I did my first graduate degree at the Parsons School of Design, where I teach now. Um, And I learned about business design. It's just using design to be able to solve challenges for businesses and creating solutions within a a set of constraints. That's all that it is. And so you're using those design principles in order to create solutions um, for people and for the planet. And so my mission specifically going from the investment management world into what I do now at Forbes Ignite is specifically with financial inclusion. So, Nicole, tell us what exactly is financial inclusion? So financial inclusion, according to the World Bank, it means that individuals and businesses have access to useful and affordable financial products and services. So that could mean uh, payments, savings, credit, insurance, you name it. 
And of course, it's delivered in a responsible and sustainable way. Got it. Key, underline, highlight, exclamation point, responsible and sustainable. But also, I want to underline, highlight, and exclamation point, everyone, right? Not mm -hmm. just a select group of people or people who know how to get to this bank or people who have a bank in their community, because there's some places that don't have banks, right? Like they don't right. have grocery stores, like food deserts, bank deserts. Um, so really, this is defined as for everyone and not, not just a select group. It kind of makes me crazy to think that it's like, what a new idea, but in many mm -hmm. cases, right, the sort of um, gatekeepers of the financial world have predominantly been white males. So right. for you, how does that, how does that, when you're, you're advocating for as a, a non-white male, right, mm -hmm. like advocating for more of us and all of us to have those same sort of um, privileges that some people have had for many, many, many years, how does that look? as you're advancing in your own career and kind of opening that door that's been nailed closed for so many decades. Exactly. No, absolutely. And I would just preface this by saying that financial inclusion, yes, it's pretty important in the developing world, but financial inclusion, it actually refers to a lot of things that are happening in the developed world, in our society today. And especially for people with my background, as you said, as a woman of color, it's extremely difficult to build generational wealth. Mm -hmm. And I'm doing my part as a professor of financial management at the Parsons School of Design, which is an interesting environment to be discussing finance, right? Yeah. I thought it was just really interesting because it just makes it all the more important to be talking about these things, especially in an environment and a stage of life where you have no background or just have minimal exposure to it. Like I said, I studied finance and international business in undergrad. I worked in private wealth and private equity. And so when I was working in that field, it just didn't sit well with me that the majority of the clients, if not all of them, didn't look like me. It was my mission to, when I went back to school to do something about this. Interesting. So not only did I'm sure the boardrooms and the office spaces that you occupied not have maybe the most diverse and welcoming experience for you yourself as a woman of color, but also the clients you were serving look very dissimilar from yourself. So you're like, how can I actually change this? Which really makes total sense that you would be at Parsons because this is a, a place that probably attracts a lot of creatives and creative yes. solutions coming from there. But why wouldn't we want to have creative solutions for finance and for that matter, accessibility to monies and just financial literacy, right? And that's where we're doing social media in a whole new way, particularly for thought leaders, industry disruptors, and business activists. So if you're interested in that, you better click that bio, lbibackstagepass.com. That's L for lady, be like boss. I like international, backstagepass.com. See you on the backstage. It's, more, it's a little more masculine to keep money out of the creative, right? Like to be mm -hmm. like, no, these are the rules. This is how we do it. We don't have any opportunity for any sort of like inventive or creative solution. So what what is it like both studying and then also teaching a more creative approach to finance and, and thereby inclusive finance? I love this question because it basically just draws in all of my past experiences and everything that I learned in grad school. So I would say that what I learned, my biggest takeaway from grad school was human-centered design. 
And this can be applied to anything. It's industry agnostic. You can apply this to finance. You can apply this to tech, healthcare, what have you. But especially when it comes to finance, you are designing solutions for people by people. I mean, it seems really simple, right? Really straightforward. But a lot of times, a lot of organizations out there, they're just pushing product out the door and they're mm-hmm. not really thinking about the people that they're serving. So mm. teaching teaching in this creative environment and learning from this creative environment really, really just brought to the forefront how important it is to really understand the feedback and the, I would say, the insights from the people that you're serving. When people talk about subject matter experts, they typically think about very like technical skills only. But life experience counts as subject matter expertise. Mm. And so when you're developing that in your products, especially financial products, that's only going to make it better. And that in turn contributes. So quick question. This is probably like sort of a kindergarten question for like a graduate (laughs) type of conversation we're having, but there's also no stupid question. So when you say financial product, Mm -hmm. you maybe talked about this earlier, but like we're talking about credit cards. We're talking about like Mm -hmm. savings accounts. We're talking about interest, uh, not interest, well, maybe interest, but how to not get interest. Yeah. We're talking about things that you use in the world of financial literacy that we might, many of us sort of commoners outside of the realm of this work you do, we might not know what those, those resources are. So there are tons of really great financial tools. There are resources like Betterment, Wealthfront. There's also, not in terms of investment, but helping you with your savings. Acorns is great. Um, it helps you round up your transactions on your, I believe it's your de- your debit account, uh, your savings account or what have you. And it moves um, all of your spare change into another savings account. Oh. So that's another great financial tool. I might think of QuickBooks as a financial tool. Yeah. No. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So like basically anything that like helps you get at your money in a more approachable way and or something that would maybe help your money become more money, right? Like that would also be a tool. Exactly. No, that's exactly right. Right. Cool. I also find that organizations like Elvest, first of all, it's run by women. I believe, if I understand correctly, it's also attached to a woman-owned bank. Like I just set it up and forgot about it. I draw $1 a month from my account and I have like a savings over there that like I mean, really a dollar a month rose really, come on, like seriously, but because I wanted to set it up and go back and like look at it and I just have not had the moment, but it's just really interesting when we start spending a little more time into the different tools and resources around financial literacy. I know from my background, my family never talked about money. Part of it was because we didn't have a lot of it and we don't want to talk about that, right? And Mm -hmm. from, you know, figuring out my mom was a single mother, had the support of her, her mother and her mother's mother, but still like, we didn't, we weren't talking about financial literacy. And I think for a lot of people, that's the case, right? How do you inform your students to be more curious? Obviously, if they're in a class, they have to be curious because they need to study and learn. But given probably more people than not have that sort of like, uh, we don't talk about money kind of vibe in their backpack Mm -hmm. from family stuff. Like, how do we shake that? Like, how do we stay curious to go Google the women-owned bank or go find sometimes we don't know what tools we need until we find them, right? Right. No, that's a great question. And the way that I keep my students curious is definitely by studying current events. Mm. Because it's the only way to tie 
such a hard topic like financial management to something that applies to you, something that you can internalize and you can relate to. So that's my way of being able to showcase that you too can learn, uh, can have a financial education on your own terms. And so I do that through case studies. And I want to agree with you that when I was growing up, my parents never talked about money. Um, They were immigrants from the Philippines. And I mean, I didn't know how much my dad made until I was in college. (laughs) So we just never talked about money. And so I was very lucky to have studied finance and have a background in it. But without it, I'd be completely lost Mm -hmm. with handling my finances. So I tell my students this all the time that you are very lucky to be able to get your feet wet because you don't really learn until you do it. And so yes. that's what I always tell, not just my students, but my friends as well. Um, it really got me thinking just like how many people out there who don't have a background in finance, they're doing their best, but they're not really maximizing their ability to build wealth, generational or not. Yeah, right. And that, I mean, that's right there. You hit the nail on the head. You didn't know what your dad's salary was until you're in college, probably because you had to fill out a faster or something like that. <laughs> something dad, like that. Right? And yeah. like, I, like we just, we don't normalize conversations about things that are scary, which maybe, mm-hmm. you know, as humans evolve, maybe we can work on that. But like, these right. are really empowering tools. Cause I know my pops, he always told me like, oh, girls are bad with numbers. Oh, you're not, you know, you're not smart in that. But don't worry. It's okay if that's hard for you. Most women. And I, and I, I internalize that as true. And then into mm. my 30s, especially being a business owner, I was like, okay, I have to get good at this. Apparently, I suck at it, but I have to get good <laughs> at it because I can't pay anyone right now to do it for me. Eventually, I would be, I will be able to do that. Thankfully, now I can. But I taught myself, and moreover than teaching myself how to do things like QuickBooks or, or learn how to find different investment tools or just speak to people like you who have more knowledge than me, I had to teach myself that that story that my old man told me was totally bullshit. Mm-hmm. It's not true, right? Like, like I, I'm not great. I'm not. I'm definitely not teaching finance at Parsons. But what I am, I'm doing is I'm empowering myself to stay curious, and I appreciate that you're doing that with your students. But also, you're shifting the paradigm because you are the first person in your family that's like openly talking about money and finance, and that has its own waves. So, Nicole, if you'll talk to us a little bit more about how you feel the work you're doing shifts the paradigm. Um, mm-hmm. I'm really excited because this is this gets into the meaty part of what we're doing on the Backstage Pass as well, which we'll mm-hmm. get into a little bit later. So tell us a little bit more about this concept of financial literacy for all as paradigm shifting. Yeah, absolutely. So I believe that the paradigm is shifting because it all depends on what you're exposed to. And mm-hmm. A lot of my students, they probably took one economics course in high school if they were lucky. Even then, that doesn't really translate into personal finance or things like investing. That's completely different. And it takes a dedicated class. For many of these people that I speak with, the first time they ever talk about an investment account is by the time they land a full-time job and they get a 401k, that's the very first time they encounter the investing world. And I think that there's something wrong with that. (laughs) I really feel like you you should be investing on your own terms. Even before you can start investing before you land a full-time job, it's essential to be able to be comfortable with investing and getting that exposure to it. So I would say number one is just exposure. 
Mm-hmm. Um, like you were saying, a lot of a lot of men try to say, "Oh, girls aren't great at math, and girls aren't great with numbers." But I was speaking with a friend of mine that this is simply not true because psychologically, if you are being told that from the beginning, from an early age, you're going to believe that. Mm-hmm. But if we can change that, if we could shift that by talking about finance and money a lot earlier in life and talking about, yes, you can, yes, you can, it fundamentally shifts the mindset. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also I think it, it not only shifts mindset, but it allows people access to lanes that they would have thought were cut off to them simply because, you know, I'm not good at that or I'm, mm-hmm. I'm never going to be able to based on some story that's just simply not true. Right. And not that's true. wouldn't have necessarily gone into a career of finance had I not heard that story. But mm-hmm. to your point, I may have started building my own wealth sooner if I had approached things like the Roth IRA, which I now have into my you know late 30s early 40s, I can start looking at like, wow, but what if I was doing that in my 20s? Right. Right? Or like, what if that that little account at Elvest that I put a dollar a month in, what if I did that 20 years ago? Right? Mm -hmm. Or the, as you mentioned, Acorn, where it like rounds up, because those types of things, as, as I've experienced just in the short time that I did decide to change that narrative, I can forget about it and then go, oh shit, there's my rainy day fund. Okay, that's right. Now I remember. So those little pieces that like add up over time and help to sort of shift what might be possible for me financially. And I want to kind of segue from what we're talking about shifting paradigm into specifically when um, underrepresented groups like women, like folks of color, when we have access to more money, what do we do? We typically invest it back into our communities that have been underserviced, right? And so I'm just curious when we talk about financial inclusion, what you maybe have seen in regards to stats on women investing back into communities. I mean, after all, we are in the United States, 52% women, right? That means we're Mm -hmm. over the majority. There are more women than men in this country, a large amount of folks in between, right? They's and thems. But like ultimately 52% of the the country is women. 83% of the purchasing power is had by women, right? Mm -hmm. And so can you share what you maybe have seen in your, your financial inclusion studies around more women getting more money and what that looks like? Absolutely. We call that feminist economic empowerment. For women who are earning more, they're generating more wealth. Yes, they are investing back into their communities more often and more frequently. There's also a myth that if you're an immigrant or if you're a woman, that you just simply don't give. You don't donate. You don't, like you said, invest back into your community. But more times, more often than not, women are doing this more. And it's only increasing over time. And it's also a generational thing as well. I was reading that only 30-something percent of boomers consider themselves philanthropists, but for um, millennials, about about 74, 75 percent of millennials consider themselves philanthropists. Wow, what a huge jump. A huge jump, especially like intergenerational. So It'd be interesting to see sort of the, what, what a boomer defines as a philanthropist and mm-hmm. what what a millennial, what we call a philanthropist. Have you heard of this term, effective altruism? To me, that translates as giving a damn, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. Um, Some may call that philanthropic. Some may call that being generous with your, you know, tithes and your offering, depending on what you you may or may not, you know, participate in from a religious perspective. But Mm -hmm. that's a really interesting stat from boomer to millennial. If it's trendy, 
to give a shit, like awesome, giving back, so to speak. But I'm really interested in what you see, not just from like your students, but also maybe the the circles you sit in socially. Are, would you define yourself as millennial? Like what does philanthropic, yeah. <laughs> what, what, what would you say philanthropic behavior looks like? I would say that, you know, it's funny you ask because I recently read this really interesting article from the New York Times that came out about one or two months ago that talked about why people gave more during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And it said that money just took on a different social meaning. Mm, okay. <laughs> yeah. So we were all being quarantined. We we're all separated from one another. But one way to stay connected, it was through uh, transactions, financial transactions. And back in, let's say 2008, we didn't have things like cash app, Venmo, things like that, but we have those tools at our disposal now and we're able to give and we're able to help others, not just our friends and family, but our, the causes that we care about. And they're making it easier more than ever to be able to donate to the causes that you care about. Mm, so that could totally be a reason for like increased philanthropic activity. Yes. We had, we had, we have the access to the technology. We have the time to like, be like, Oh, I care more today. I'm a millennial. I'm a vintage millennial, but I'm a millennial. Um, <laughs> I like that. I'm going to steal that from you. <laughs> totally. Totally. Take it. When we talk about financial inclusion, like, if, if the gatekeepers begin to look more and more like you and me and the guys, like we're not kicking them out. Right. We're right. just like, please make the door bigger. Please make the table longer. Mm-hmm. Oh, if you won't, we'll, <laughs> we have some hammers here, gentlemen. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it, that makes me think of again, back to like the different opportunities for um, funding, the different opportunities for grants, different, just mm-hmm. like just general literacy around what's available fiscally. See, like we can never set anything on like, you know, cruise control and like check back in 10 years. We have to be actively paying attention. But I think that's why the work that you're doing from a professor perspective and leadership mm-hmm. around money, but it also sounds like it's kind of what you do in your own world. And so I wonder if right. you could talk a little bit about that. How, how do you integrate this into your own life? Yeah, absolutely. You have to be educated in what you're investing in and why. Because I mentioned those great tools before. Those are great supplements to your investment strategy, but they're not everything. Like setting it and forgetting it, sure. But you have to understand why you're investing in what asset class you're in. Like for those who don't know what asset classes are, they're just different types of investments. That's just a fancy way of saying different categories of investment. And you have to understand what asset class to invest in during what time in the market and what's trending, why is it trending, and also how to read financial statements. I will say that for anyone that wants to understand the health of a, of a company and whether or not to invest in them, you have to read their financial statements. Ah, so interesting. So that's some super sleuthy stuff. I can imagine, like, I like how you were like, I would, I tell this to my friends, I tell this to my students, but I'm like imagining you like on Friday night, like chilling out and like reading like, financial <laughs> background of companies, like, like low key, this is like my, my, my chill time. That's cool nerding for sure. But I had never thought about that because both from an investment perspective, obviously you want to know, like, does this make sense to invest my money in this company? Are they doing well? Also the ethics of the company and knowing like what you're actually helping to support the company do. But then on top of it, even thinking about it from a perspective of working for the company, right? I was actually talking about this 
uh, gentleman last night at a networking event, mm-hmm. and he was talking about how we, you know, we're, we we have so much trouble in the world right now, and we don't need to list all the things that are going on. If anyone's paying attention even remotely, we know that there's a lot of challenges happening in the world right now. And what he was saying is that we're doomed, and we have we have we have nothing that we can do about it. And I said, I don't agree. With, I respectfully disagree, sir, because we give. We give our consent to certain things and we can adjust where we give our consent, right? And so when it comes to financial participation, right, even our American dollar bill basically says, like, we we validate this thing as, as real, right? And so right. all of us, including people not in the United States, non-Americans, validate that this dollar means this thing, right? Mm-hmm. And so my curiosity, and I'm not going to get into, like, NFTs and blockchains and all that. That can be a whole <laughs> other conversation. But... My curiosity is, you know, when we look at the backgrounds of financial, uh, of companies we might be investing in, or we might be looking at working at, or we might even just be thinking about purchasing from, right? Mm-hmm. And I think we see this more trending more and more and more with younger generations. But like, if if it doesn't sit right, if we don't feel comfortable, if we're like, oh, I wouldn't want to work there in five years. Oh, I don't know if I want to give them money to invest in like making missiles for wars. We, we suddenly wake up a little bit to the power of that consent. And like, I would much rather invest my money in a company that helps make XYZ happen or helps to defend against XYZ. Right. Mm-hmm. And so if, if you would just touch on a little bit about that from a perspective of like consumer consent in yes. the world of where you invest your money or where you just even buy things. I love this. I absolutely love this because when I was in graduate school, I did a deep dive on something called impact investing, hoarding an organization while earning a profit. And there's nothing wrong with earning a profit while you're helping another company. It's just that philanthropy and for profit used to be these two different things, but now they can be together. If you just imagine a Venn diagram, you can do well by doing good. When I surveyed a, a lot of people around how would you um, best support a company, they said, I would actually purchase, decide whether or not to purchase their product. Voting with their dollars mm-hmm. is what it is. They would rather do that than invest in the company. It's, investing came in second. Again, we're shifting that paradigm, right? Right. But when you're voting with your dollars, you decide whether or not you want to purchase from a specific organization or not, depending on what they're doing. And So many brands are out there that are doing a really great job and being transparent about what they're doing. And for certified B corporations, for example, they actually publish um, an assessment report on the impact that they make in the world. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of like a financial statement, but it's not. It's for impact. A great example of that is Patagonia. Yes. Yes, yes. And just real quick, so so B Corp, for, for those that don't know, because I'm just actually learning about B Corps, right? Like there's mm-hmm. different ways that you can be like an LLC, your business can be incorporated as an S Corp, a C Corp, or in this case, a B Corp, which if you can just elaborate a little bit more on what a B Corp is. Sure. So a B Corp could be any for-profit company. You could, you could start off as a C Corp, for example, um, not having anything to do with impact and decide to pivot. And then you can actually apply to have that B certification. And you could be a certified B corporation for any for-profit organization that's out there. Now the legal structure, now this is now getting a little bit technical. The legal structure for something that's similar is called a benefit corporation. And only certain states recognize that. But you can be both a benefit corporation, which is the legal structure of the organization, 
and a B corporation at the same time. Interesting. Okay. I'm putting it, I just put a, I literally opened a browser tab, like browser tab 416 on my <laughs> tab right now. I'm going to look at that because it's something I've been thinking about. We're an S Corp, but like, as I started to learn about what B Corps are and that nature of like, do good, do you happen to know how long, I mean, I feel like they've probably been around forever as like a stamp, but it feels like it's probably more prolific than ever that businesses are doing that. There are hundreds, if not thousands, of B corporations that exist in the world. Mm -hmm. And the thing about that is once you get the certification, you have to maintain it. Mm -hmm. And there are some organizations, I won't name any names, that have lost their B certification. But I have to say, Nicole, it makes me super excited that like, you know, Patagonia, for example, is a, is a really great use case because, you know, at one point it was just like, I would, I mean, maybe not overpriced. I know that they do really awesome they, they keep you warm when you're like, you know, summiting the crest of Mount Kilimanjaro <laughs> and all these amazing things, which, you know, good on the folks that love to do that kind of adventure. <laughs> what I've what I've learned about Patagonia, not just through my adventure buddies, my friends that do those kinds of amazing tracks, but also through there's this amazing, amazing, amazing human called Patty Gonia, she goes by. And she is a drag queen and she has partnered with Patagonia on different projects wow. and other Sierra clubs and other outdoor programs um, to draw awareness to the LGBTQI community, having more, not just access, but also like feel safe when they're like going on whatever adventure. Right. And so mm -hmm. it's, you know, if let's say if, if, if Patagonia, the company was like not as cool and open and B Corp like as they are, they might like have adverse reactions to Patagonia's like, you know, she makes gowns out of like old sleeping bags. And she, I mean, she's fabulous. Wow. You must check her out on Instagram. She is so fabulous. The, the beautiful characters that come up as leaders and, you know, in fun ways on social media, but the companies that also can play off of that, like we're in this, like, I think as much as it's kind of a, crazy wild world out there right now, there's all this inventiveness and all of this beautiful build of how we can actually look at doing things slightly different. And mm -hmm. from the arch of like what you teach your students, what you do for your own self personally, and what you share with the world at large, do you, would you say your glass is half full on going forward with like new ways of financial inclusion? inclusion? Are you feeling kind of like, we got a lot of work to do. It's kind of half empty right now. Like, what are, where, where are you feeling like on your mission at the moment? So I'm an eternal optimist. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm going to have to say that even though there is a lot of work to be done, I do see the glass is half full. I'm just glad that financial inclusion is getting so much attention that it is. Um, mm -hmm. The World Bank recognizes it. The UN has identified that financial inclusion helps with seven of the sustainable development goals, and it's an enabler. And so something that I'm, a, I'm really passionate about is using finance as an enabler, not a, a hindrance to your ability to be able to prosper and thrive. Hmm. So I really think that the more financial education you can get, there's so many resources out there. I mean, there's nothing wrong with watching a YouTube video here and there about budgeting for instance, or for um, investment 101. Mm -hmm. um, the, it, you got to start somewhere, but doing that in mind while also helping your friends and your family, I think that would shift the paradigm even more. Going back to those buzzwords of 
effective altruism. So like really give a damn about your neighbor, right? Give a damn right. about your community. And, and and a lot of, I think that's what we see, right? You said half full, I'm half full. I think we do see more of that. It's just that we have to focus on on the goodness and not not the other stuff that's like, man, this really feels like it's not half full today. And so if you'll give us a little sort of snapshot into what you have coming up, what you're excited about, you said your, your glass is half full on what you're doing with financial inclusion from what you're doing in this, in this thought leader role around money. Yeah, absolutely. So my company Forbes Ignite, um, it's a research and innovation consultancy, and we focus very heavily on social impact and sustainability. And we convene business leaders, academics, artists, you name it, from all over the world in design thinking roundtable sessions to investigate some of the world's most pressing issues. And one of them is financial inclusion. So my goal and my hope is to convene a group of leaders and their organizations around the virtual table. So we talk about things like financial inclusion because it's not enough to just sit around and talk about how bad things are, but we need to talk about tangible, viable ways forward that help bring people along. So if anyone's out there that's passionate about creating a positive social impact, then let's talk. Oh, I love that. That is so cool. And it's, you, you basically like summarize the exact like feelings in my, in my heart, my soul, and my gut, like in my whole body on what I'm working on on the Backstage Pass. Check us out on the Backstage Pass, y'all. LBIBackstagePass.com. L like lady, B like boss, I like international, BackstagePass.com. All right, see you there. Let's acknowledge what's not working, but let's not spend too much time and energy and complaining about it. We can all agree, right. well, not all of us, but many of us can agree like this is not actually working. And so let's focus most of the energy on what we can make work better. I think that's like also a beautifully optimistic look. And and I think, you know, I, I've for myself personally toggled between feeling very optimistic and having so much energy and then feeling like, oh man, this is a lot of work, right? And I heard you say that earlier, like it, there is a lot of work to be done, but I think the beauty of collaboration, the beauty of leaning into other communities there, as we see on the internet there and in real life, there are more and more groups of people that are coming together with these shared missions of building better ways. And I'm just so grateful for the work that you're doing, Nicole, with Forbes Ignite, with your students. What an amazing you know, you've got a microphone in front of like the future, the youth, as they say, right? Like we, you and I, vintage millennials, even the boomers and, and even some of the greatest generation that still is with us lovingly, right? We have laid some foundations. Some of those foundations are awesome and some of them definitely need built again, rebuilt. Let's go with rebuilt. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I'm just so glad that you have this awesome, you know, awesome, this awesome outlook, but the work that you're doing with Forbes and that you're in front of students sharing this objective is really incredible. And I just hats off to you, Lady Boss, for, for all of that work. Thank you so much, Rose. No, I we can't do it without people like you that are being very active in the space and giving a damn, like you said. So mm -hmm. Right. It's, you know, it's trending to give a damn right now. So in case you're listening and you didn't give a damn yet today, maybe think about doing it this afternoon or later tonight. Right? <laughs> My, my sort of parting thought and question for you is just like how, how the work you're doing um, inspires people to, to lean into others, to ask more questions, to be more vulnerable, to, to, to make the, the unknown uh, feel curious and, and approachable. 
Absolutely. So I say this to everyone and anyone that's listening um, that knows me very well is probably going to laugh because I say this all the time that I strongly believe that each and every one of us is creative. We, we so often tell ourselves that we're not good at this. We're not good at that. And we're not good at thinking outside of the box or what have you, but it's important to really, really instill that creativity in others and help them uncover that and unlearn some of the things that made them feel like they weren't. Activity is the cornerstone of innovation. And in order to really lean into our creating things that are beneficial for our communities, we're gonna have to innovate and think of new, more novel ways to do things. And so I really believe that if everyone just really harnessed their creativity, they would be able to do so much more. Mm, I love that. From Professor at Parsons talking about finance. I mean, the perfect way to end this podcast, talking about money, but approaching it from a more creative, possibly even more feminine way than we have traditionally and what that can look like for innovating our, our new world ahead. So thank you, Nicole. You're an amazing, amazing human. You're an incredible lady boss. The work you're doing in the world is so needed and I just appreciate you so much. So thank you for joining us today and I'm, I'm, I'm just thrilled to have crossed paths with you. Thank you so much, Rose. I hope we get to do this again soon. Check us out on the Backstage Pass, y'all. LBIbackstagepass.com. L like lady, B like boss, I like international, backstagepass.com. All right, see you there.